Welcome to Radio Cachimbona. I'm Yvette, and this is episode 7. Radio Cachimbona is a podcast hosted by one Salvatorian, that's a Salvadoran Taurus, growing, healing, and storytelling in Southern Arizona. I'm here to storytell the fierce ongoing resistance occurring in these borderlands and center Central American voices. Today, I'm really excited to have Dev from School of the Americas Watch with me to talk about all the really dope work that she's been doing in Tucson for many years. So Dev, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi everyone, my name is Deborah Gonzalez. I am from Guatemala and El Salvador, born and raised in LA and living in Tucson for several years now. Part of the community out here that's been responding to border militarization and holding the United States accountable for its human rights violations. Awesome, great. So can you tell us what exactly you do with School of the Americas Watch and how you first got involved? Oh, we yeah. need to start all over. No, also I, I like you know I was living I was living in LA right, which is in a in American community in Koreatown um, around Pico Union and and still there was a lot of support and a lot of protection within such a big city, but there isn't and there wasn't that kind of protection directly at the border, mm-hmm. right where people were crossing and it started like hearing of the migrant deaths and the militarization of the border and so it was just kind of like the pool out here to come to Tucson to learn about what was going on to become invested and be able to offer some kind of support to mm-hmm. the directly a people affected people crossing the desert and crossing the border. In 2014, I started doing abuse documentation. There's a report called Deprivation Not Deterrence and it was at a time when there was an influx of unaccompanied minors that were coming into that were coming mm-hmm. and there was also an influx of parents with their children that were presenting themselves at the border asking for political asylum and so these families were held in short-term detention and then dropped off at the Greyhound station we were able to be there and offer some food offer some like information about what the papers meant right when they needed to present themselves in front of a court, in front of a judge again. So people were giving papers in English and never explained what they said when it had like all their court information on it. Exactly. So if they miss the court date, for example, they'll be ordered deported. Exactly. And so a lot of families didn't even know that and didn't understand that. And so we were able to provide that information, but we were also able to create a relationship and get some information about what the experience was within that detention center. And so a lot of these experiences were not being, you know, being in super cold freezing cells, given blankets that are made of aluminum foil, not having enough or proper food not being given enough water not given medical attention Mm -hmm. and these are again women with their children Mm -hmm. i mean we saw babies from literally baby babies Mm -hmm. up until 16 year olds Mm -hmm. and still all of them were within those same conditions there were pregnant women that were not offered medical attention Mm -hmm. at all Mm -hmm. right and so What this report was used for was able to, ACLU was able to use it to sue Border Patrol and force them to change the conditions. Now, we've seen in all the pictures lately, we know Mm -hmm. that there is a new baby that has just passed away in Border Patrol custody. So we know that that didn't and has not changed, Mm -hmm. right? But still, we were out there and we've been able to and have tried to 
make change in these ways mm -hmm. for a few years now. Mm -hmm. It's solidarity work, like you were saying. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Solidarity work. And so part of the other work that I've been doing, and it still very much exists, is a missing migrant hotline. And so we were guiding families through the process of locating the relatives that have disappeared crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm -hmm. And so the hot, these hotlines still exist. There's one based out of the South Texas Human Rights Center in McAllen, in McAllen Texas, and there's another one that is based in Tucson, Arizona, and it's ran by No More Deaths. Mm -hmm. And so what they've been able to do is guide families through the process of either searching for relatives in detention centers or coordinate search and rescue efforts and when none of that works, then try to find their bodies or their relatives' bodies, either in like office of medical examiners, etc. Right? Um, it's been somewhat of a complicated process because because no one is out there. The state is not out there actively searching to pick up people's bodies mm -hmm. right and so a lot of people then go disappeared are disappeared mm -hmm. because their bodies are never found cool yeah and then how did that get you to school of the america's watch this is what you're doing now because that's a little bit different right right so what we're so that work is direct help within the current border crisis right mm -hmm. but the work of School of the Americas Watch is focusing on the root causes of migration, focusing on what have been the conditions that have been created so that people are actually pushed out and why things are militarized. Mm -hmm. And so I think it helps if when I start explaining, well, School of the Americas is a military training institution in Fort Benning, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And that school started in 1946 in Panama in the Panama Canal mm -hmm. and at some point it moved to Georgia so the graduates of this school are taught how to torture how to disappear how to have coups how to implement the militarization at the border mm -hmm. but in the 1980s in the early 1990s the founder of School of the Americas watch father Roy Bourgeois was would go into Catholic? yes oh. a Catholic priest. He would go into the library of School of the Americas and write down the name of the graduates. So what they were able to do at the time was compare those with the names of the people that had committed the massacres. Mm -hmm. And so, what the comparisons that were made is that people like. Efrain Rios Montt, the dictator of Guatemala, was found to be an SOA graduate. Mm -hmm. The people that created the that implemented the massacre at El Mozote in El Salvador during the 1980s were SOA graduates. Mm -hmm. A lot of the military in Guatemala that committed genocide were SOA graduates. And you've had SOA graduates really from all over Latin America, from Chile, yeah. from Honduras, Colombia. Argentina. Argentina. And there were some, at some point, there were efforts, right, that SOA Watch was doing, international efforts of talking to presidents and getting them to withdraw their troops from School of the Americas and from being trained at School of the Americas. Who was doing that? This was the organization, School of the Americas Watch. It gets oh, complicated because sometimes it. you're talking about SOA Watch and yeah. sometimes you're talking about SOA. Yeah, I got confused. Um, okay. But... SOA Watch was mm -hmm. talking to 
different presidents, for example, in Venezuela, talking to Hugo, Hugo Chavez and got him to withdraw the troops. Mm-hmm. The conditions now are different, right? This was 90s, early 2000s. Another part of the work that SOA Watch was doing was presenting a bill in Congress and talking to congressmen, lobbying to get them to shut down this military training institution. Mm -hmm. So at some point, we were seven Congress votes away from actually shutting down this this military training institution. Mm -hmm. And I mean, soon after that, the school did shut down, but it reopened with a different name. Okay. So now it's called WINSEC, Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation. Oh, wow. Super long name. It's not as easy anymore, right? (laughs) But because they rebranded this military training, what they did when they opened up the school again was offer a one-day course on human rights. Oh, my God. That's it. Right? So it doesn't really change anything. It doesn't really change what's been trained or taught there. Right? And they since have opened military and training institutions all over Latin America. So really, WINSEC or SOA works as a symbol of where and what the S- what SOA Watch teaches. Or sorry, what SOA teaches. Mm-hmm. At some point, due to a FOIA, one of the things that was released was a was what is called the torture manuals. And so you can you literally can find these. These were created in Fort Huachuca, Arizona, but these are exactly what they sound like, teaching people how to torture, how to disappear, how to have coups. And while all of this information is historical, Honduras serves as a really good case example of how things continue to happen and to evolve, mm-hmm. right? So we know that in 2009, there was a coup that was backed by Hillary Clinton that was legitimized by the Obama administration. It really set the country into into turmoil, right? Since a lot of people have been displaced from Honduras, there's a high unemployment rate in the country. We know that in they have since have had right-wing presidents. In 2017, there was elections that were incredibly fraudulent. It was Juan Orlando Hernandez that was really that was trying to go for a second and did get got a second presidency, a second term in Honduras, which is not which is not allowed in the Honduras constitution or it wasn't allowed in the Honduran constitution. And one of the reasons why Celaya in 2009 was ousted Right. It was because Celaya at the time was trying to do some form of agrarian reform mm-hmm. and also trying to amend part of the constitution. And it would mean that he could run for a second term. Mm-hmm. But this was too much. This was too liberal, too, too equal for the United States, for mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they orchestrated the coup, which was backed by people that had been trained at WINSEC. Mm-hmm. And... When Juan Orlando Hernandez was in elections against Nasraya, and Nasraya was the person that was the people were supporting, and he was winning, all of a sudden the electoral tribunal just stops counting votes. It just shuts down for hours. Comes back up, 
you know, it's a little weird, shuts back down. It happens several times. And finally, when it comes back on, all of a sudden, where it seems statistically impossible for Juan Orlando Hernandez to win, all of a sudden he has more votes. And Nasraya has lost. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that people were not really voting for Nasraya. They were voting against Juan Orlando. And com communities, communities come out and there's protests all over all over the, the country, right? It's literally shut down for days. Mm -hmm. And soon after that, by December and January, you have people that are now political prisoners. And political prisoners because of their involvement in these protests. Mm -hmm. You also have a situation in 2016. I don't know if you've ever heard of Berta Cáceres. Mm -hmm. So Berta Cáceres is an indigenous an indigenous leader with Copin Alenka, indigenous woman who was fighting to defend the river that was being taken from this ancestral community and they wanted to build and they want to build a hydroelectric dam mm -hmm. by the corporation DESA. Mm -hmm. DESA wants to build this hydroelectric dam. Mm -hmm. And so the organization that she founded, Copin, was really good at challenging this organization. So good that there were eight intellectual authors that were part of this uh, two trained at WINSEC that orchestrated her murder wow. in her home in 2016. Mm -hmm. And so Berta is really serves as an inspiration in the entire country. You see it all over where it says Berta no murió, se, se multiplicó. Mm -hmm. Berta did not die. She multiplied. And really, I mean, it's true, right? You have at this moment you have people that are still fighting for the rivers mm -hmm. you have political prisoners still there's edwin espinal there's raul that are in a maximum security prison in honduras called la tolva and la tolva is a u.s modeled prison yeah. right and so oh, yeah that's happening across latin america it's the importing of the u.s prison model across latin america right mm -hmm. and so I think you point out to something really important, right? It's the exporting of the prison model, the exporting of the militarization, the exporting of the conditions that displace people, mm -hmm. right? You train the military in Latin America. You send them back to their home countries. They kill, they murder, they scare people, they put people in jail, they displace entire communities, and now they have to come to the United States or they have to flee their home country, for some kind of safety and all the other countries around you are also in some kind of political turmoil also because of the United States, mm -hmm. right? And then they start crossing, like they start coming to the United States. Yeah. They have to go through Guatemala, Mexico and that border that's militarized and... Frontera Sur and how it's become like an extension of the U.S. border. Exactly. And it is. It is an extension of the U.S. border. In fact, one of the things I don't know if I've made clear is that Border Patrol is also trained at WINSEC. It's really important to point out. Right. So if they're being trained at WINSEC, what are they implementing along the borderlands? Mm -hmm. Right. Just recently, you see a caravan from Central America trying to get into Guatemala. It's, sorry, into it's Mexico. Oh, Mexico. And in Mexico, the tactics that are being implemented are the same exact tactics that are implemented in the border mm -hmm. between Mexico and the United States to 
scatter people to make sure that people are lost to make sure that people die etc right mm-hmm. it's the same tactics and dynamics right in the 1980s where you have mass incarceration in the united states because of drug war right like let's refer to the new jim crow mm-hmm. and you have this entire situation that's happening impacted mostly with african-american communities you also have the first central the first private detention center contract in texas So what they start doing then is start implementing the conditions that will soon become what we have now, which is a lot of private detention centers, Mm -hmm. which is increased militarization, which is anti-rhetoric, like anti-migrant rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And it just starts fueling that, right? So you have the 1980s, the beginning of these private detention centers. You have the 1990s anti-migrant rhetoric, mm-hmm. Ramping up of incarceration. Exactly. Criminalizing right. more things that can lead to deportation. Yes, exactly. And then in, two, in the 2000s, in 2005, you have Operation Streamline. Do you know what that is? Yeah, but I, we've talked about it already, but just to, in case... Somebody who hasn't listened before is now listening. Can you explain Operation Streamline? So Operation Streamline started in 2005 as a way of increasing, criminalizing migration. So where illegal entry and re-entry, right, for lack of a better term, Mm -hmm. quotes. Yeah, that's what the crime is called. (laughs) Right, exactly. That's what the so-called crime is Mm -hmm. called. But that specific thing used to be a civil offense. Right. Right. Because supposedly all of immigration law is civil law. So supposedly that's why, like, you can incarcerate somebody for a crime in the criminal system and then immediately put them in ICE detention because normally that wouldn't be allowed because that'd be double jeopardy and you're criminalizing someone twice for the same thing. But because immigration is a civil law, it's this really weird loophole where you can detain people, you can... And, Um, I guess, but it's really ironic because actually they have started mingling the two systems so much. Like with legal entry and reentry, they criminalize something that was supposedly a civil offense because it's all supposed to be civil. And Operation Streamline was was one of the methods in which they started doing that. Mm -hmm. At the time, I don't know if they do it in other court, Operation Streamline courts. They started doing it in San Diego. And I think in Texas. Right. Well, it started in Texas. Okay. It came to Tucson, and the more recent one is California. Mm-hmm. What I'm getting at is that for several years, and I don't know if this is still a practice, but for several years, people were chained when they were in front of the judge. Mm-hmm. They were literally chained by their waist, ankles, and wrists. Hands. Mm-hmm while they were in front of the judge. Mm-hmm. They would go see a judge seven at a time. There were about 70 detainees that would see the judge in in Tucson really the shortest time has been 30 minutes Mm -hmm. how do you criminalize 70 people in 30 minutes and call that justice Mm -hmm. you don't right because when a person is detained there is a 72 hour window in which a person will then be chosen to go from like the traditional model of of detention before mm-hmm. or be put in operation streamline and when they're in operation streamline it's almost a guaranteed deportation they see the judge a lawyer their sentence and they begin to serve their sentence literally in a day mm-hmm. and so the importance of operation streamline is because now the highest prosecuted crime in the united states is no longer related to drug mm-hmm. to drugs but it's actually 
illegal entry and re-entry. Yeah. 40% of the docket in the federal district court in Tucson is illegal entry and re-entry cases. Like almost half of what all Tucson federal judges see before them is illegal entry and re-entry. I don't think people realize how many resources are being devoted to that. And so Operation Streamline has been the model in which that has happened. Mm -hmm. In which criminalization of migrants, the criminalization of migration has been happening. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important to point out how that started from the 80s, the 90s, to the 2000s. And then soon after that, you start having the Medida Initiative fighting supposedly the drug war in Mexico and Mm -hmm. funding for that. But this Medida Initiative has four pillars in it. And one of them is the creation of the 21st century border. What does the creation of the 21st century border mean even, right? But what, in my opinion, what that means then is the implementing of technology to be able to monitor people's migration routes, routes. And so... Because you know it's not really about enforcing drug trafficking or like, because most drugs that come into the border actually pass in through the ports of entry. Right. So to criminalize the areas where people cross not at the port of entry is not related to drug trafficking no like the state is literally gaslighting us <laughs> making us believe that it's about this when it's not yeah when it's not right can you tell us about border encuentro which i think you said is like the one of the biggest events of school of the americas watch right so related to all of this right this realization by the organization by our school of the americas watch that yes this was where it started school of the americas winsec is where one of the root causes of migration the current political climate in which we are in is one where people are disappearing not just in latin america but disappearing within the borders of the united states Mm -hmm. because of the militarization that's been happening Mm -hmm. and so the existence of this border wall which I'm going to go ahead and take the time and say that it's also in relation with Israel, right? Mm-hmm. There's corporations like Elbit that implement towers and technology, like literally the wall is Israeli infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? And so this relationship and this wall that exists, exists for the sole benefit of oppression. Mm-hmm. And so having a presence at the border at the border, mm-hmm. right? Mobilizing thousands of people to come and meet at this site in ambos Nogales, Nogales Arizona, mm-hmm. Nogales Sonora mm-hmm. and meet in this location is an act of resistance. Mm-hmm. Right? There are different places along the border where it's very difficult to be on both sides at the same time. Up until a few years up until literally last year in this border region people were able to like still touch each other hug each other through the fence it's no longer possible right they've put wire around it they've put like this metal mesh they've added this so-called pedestrian fence but it like literally it's to separate and to add a distance between the border wall and maybe like eight feet between where your relative can be Mm -hmm. you know it's this Mm -hmm. really weird dynamic but we for the past three years have had a presence there have gathered thousands of people as a space of resistance education and imagining what kind of world we want to have without these border walls and so there have been people all over the world from mexico chile Honduras, like all over, all over the world that come from Latin America and also people from all over the United States that 
go and we meet there we have an entire weekend of events conference concerts and even our presence right there at the wall mm -hmm. being like we're gonna be within your pedestrian fence whether you like <laughs> it or not is an act of civil disobedience is an act of resistance mm -hmm. right and so that is the mobilization that we've been doing for for the past three years but that mobilization comes from other mobilizations that we had in front of Fort Benning, Georgia, mm -hmm. right? Which was, we're going to be here and we're going to be present and we're going to make you, make sure that you understand that we are resisting your state structure, mm -hmm. right? And so for... And Fort Benning is where it started or that's where people were trained. Exactly. So Fort Benning is the location where WinSec exists and that's where the mobilizations used to happen for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And now we've shifted over. However, this year, being the 30th anniversary of a massacre that happened at the University of Central America, where six Jesuit priests oh, yeah. were murdered, mm -hmm. in along with Elba, which is the housekeeper, and Selena, her teenage daughter, this is the 30th anniversary oh, wow. of their assassination. Mm -hmm. And nothing has changed. Yeah. Right? Nothing has changed. And we think it's really important to continue to remember, to continue to remember what is happening and to continue to remember who we've lost right who's been murdered who's been disappeared like the role of the united states in its intervention and how how that relates to what's happening now mm -hmm. right historical memory like how are we going to move forward if we can't remember the past the state wants us to forget right. who has died mm -hmm. who has disappeared what they've done mm -hmm. and we refuse to do that so this is an open invitation for everyone listening to come to Fort Benning to Winsec November 15th to 17th this year awesome. and be in resistance there with us. That's really great. And so you've kind of been like edging towards this conclusion, but okay. is so would you say that this remembering when the state is trying to render certain people forgettable is the reason why it's really important to keep acknowledging School of the Americas WinSec because you were saying that even though that it's really important to connect the things that occurred in the 80s 90s 2000s to current to current times so do you think that that's part of why you're a part of this organization that is devoted to recognizing all the harms that School of the Americas has has created absolutely Absolutely. That, I mean, yeah, it's part of like the work of the organization. It's also work of ourselves, right? I mean, like I mentioned earlier, I grew in, I grew up in LA. I grew up in Koreatown. I went to Belmont High School. Like I grew up in a community that was mostly Central American migrants from Mexico, from like the South, mm -hmm. right? From Southern Mexico. And there was always this big question of in myself, having a mom from what the a mom from El Salvador, a dad from Guatemala, like, how did I get here? Mm -hmm. How did my parents get here? Why did they have to leave? What happened? And again, the silence, right? The silence of of the history because of the fear, because of the trauma, because of the role that everyone played. Mm -hmm. And it was really hurtful and painful but in me it just left questions right and so that's how i really that's what like fueled that little fire let me find out let me find out and so i start i 
went to Cal State Northridge and I studied Central American Studies. So oh, awesome. There, is that one of the few places that has that department? It is the only place in the United States that wow. actually has a department of Central American Studies, and wow. that's at Cal State Northridge. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Um, and there's a lot of other schools like Cal State LA and UCLA that are also offering classes around Central America and the history of Central America. And I think UCLA is trying to have some kind of program or department, but Cal State Northridge is the only one with like an actually, with an actual department. But that's, and that's exactly where I studied. And that's where I started making these connections and learned of, for example, the 1932 massacre in El Salvador that mm-hmm. happened in the western area of El Salvador in the Department of Sonsonate and affected a lot of different communities like Isalco, Navisalco, etc. And it was a, a massacre where thousands and thousands of people were killed. Mm-hmm. And indigenous people specifically. And indigenous people. So when I started learning that, I was like, wait, hold up. My mom's from Isalco. Oh, wow. Wait, that was 1932 and my grandma was born in 1938. Oh. But they've never talked about this. Did they know? Right? And so it started like bringing up all these questions mm-hmm. and making these connections with that side of my mom's family and like getting to understand myself in terms of understanding history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's really helped come to some kind of healing space. It's I mean, really this past beautiful. year, like there's just been so much family history that I've been learning. Wow. Right? That's awesome. Switching gears a little bit. How, could you describe the current political climate in Tucson and could you talk about now versus 2012 when you first moved here? Is it any different? What is different, if anything? People have been dying and people have been disappearing in these borderlands for a very long time. Right. Even prior to 2012. And there are organizations like the Coalición de Derechos Humanos and individuals like Catherine Rodriguez and Isabel Garcia that have been like laying the groundwork for connecting with the families of people that have been disappearing. Mm-hmm. But it's somewhat different in that, I mean, literally in that there is someone right now facing up to 20 years in prison because of his humanitarian aid work, mm-hmm. right? And the day that he was at trial, that same day they found four dead people in Cabeza Prieta, the refuge where people are being criminalized for dropping water. Right, so No More Deaths has been under attack Right. This past this past year, there have been there was a total of nine people that were charged with misdemeanors, including Scott Warren, Mm -hmm. that were charged with misdemeanors for leaving water in an area called Cabeza Prieta Wildlife Refuge. Mm -hmm. And the day that Scott Warren was going through these charges of misdemeanor, misdemeanor charges and he was at court, there was a group of people doing a search and rescue looking for someone that had disappeared. And instead of finding this person, they found other four people's remains. In a week, they ended up finding a total of eight people's bodies Mm -hmm. that were left there Mm -hmm. and not finding the person that they were searching for. But they found eight other people. Mm -hmm. Scott Warren is, that was the misdemeanor charges, but now in the upcoming weeks, Scott Warren is also facing felony charges. And these felony charges are for his direct help. Mm -hmm. And he... He's, like I said earlier, he's facing up to 20 years in prison, right? So the political climate is, again, these are people that are offering help. People that are directly, people that are directly affected and documented or have DACA. I mean, they have not stopped being persecuted by the state. Right. Right. Like, so that, the fact that we can say, oh yeah, things feel worse for, crim- for, for people, people offering. Yeah. It's like, 
yeah, let's also watch your privilege, right? Mm-hmm. People have continuously been fearing even going out into the store because right. if they're pulled over by highway patrol, you know, they'll get called. One of the things that happened in the past few in the past couple of months was that there was a family that was pulled over for having overly tinted windows. They were pulled over by a highway patrol who then called border patrol. When the community showed up, there's a rapid response network. And when the community showed up to show support, we found that the entire family was going to be taken into border patrol custody. This not included just the mom and the dad, but their 12 year old daughter. Mm -hmm. They literally took this child into custody. And now she's her father was deported she was released with her mom and her with her mom but while in detention she was separated they were in the same building Mm -hmm. but they were all not together Mm -hmm. this kid was in spring break at the time but i mean well what if she was in school Mm -hmm. what is the education not important Mm -hmm. right there's another situation that happened at desert view high school here in tucson where there was a walkout of maybe 200 students And that happened because one of their own was in detention. And he's supposed to graduate in May. Right. The situation has not changed. And the conditions, I mean, the fact that you have now four children that have died in Border Patrol custody. I don't really want to judge it and say if it's better or worse because that's, I mean, it's It's not. It's all tragic. It's all tragic. And it's all been bad. And for years and years, people have been murdered and disappeared and separated from their families and the conditions that are now happening are incredibly inhumane and they violate all kinds of international agreements and Mm -hmm. it's disgusting Mm -hmm. and really shameful that at some point this is history you know you've talked a little bit about the violations that border patrol commits but is there anything else that you want to highlight that is specific to how border patrol operates in tucson Something that was new to me coming from California, well, coming from Northern California, were the interior checkpoints and how you can be stopped and pulled over in without probable cause. Border Patrol, in my mind, is really, it's a rogue agency and they do whatever they want. Yeah. So do you want to speak to that? Basically, we are within the 100 miles of the border. And so Border Patrol has all the power to do whatever they want mm-hmm. this is like their jurisdiction exactly and yeah it's it's they it's their jurisdiction but also it's like i don't know i mean i don't know what i'm trying to say right now just that it's disgusting yeah <laughs> it's really aggressive i mean i don't know when we start talking about interior checkpoints right i start thinking of like the interior checkpoints i start thinking of elbit towers i start thinking of the impacts of like elbit towers what's that it's the Israeli towers that oh, I was talking about okay. earlier. So Tucson, so the Arizona area has a reservation for the Tata Atham nation that's mm-hmm. right at the border. Right. And this nation is literally being divided by this by this border. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about these interior checkpoints, there are interior checkpoints within their nation. Right. There are interior checkpoints coming in and out mm-hmm. of their nation, right? That along with the virtual, with the virtual wall that's been implemented, and that's like through Elbit Towers. So these Elbit Towers, there are these towers that use microwaves to be able to know to 
be able to detect where people are crossing. And so long-term exposure to these microwaves cause cancer. Oh, wow. And there are these towers that are implemented within the nation, oh, in wow. communities of that nation. So there are these being communities. Being exposed to cancer. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Being exposed to cancer just to for catch living. people. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and, yeah. and the violation... And and the violation of their privacy because there are these cameras that look into their backyards 24-7. I mean, it's absolutely disgusting. And I think those are some of the differences between the Border Patrol in the presence that Border Patrol has in these borderlands mm-hmm. than the presence that Border Patrol has in L.A., in Northern California, in different parts, in the interior of the United States, mm-hmm. right? And so I think those are some of the big differences and the experiences that of living in Tucson. I mean, you've been here for a little bit now, and if you ever notice, like, the the planes that are flying over, you don't yeah, really get to the, see like, them, but you low hear level them. Drums. Yeah. yeah, right? That's, like, the Air Force-based testing stuff. That's yeah. the military. Sometimes when you see them going west, you know that they're going toward the desert. And what are they going to go do, right? So, really, what I say is that we... Or one of the common thoughts, really, is that we live in a low war, low intensity war zone. Mm-hmm. That's where we live. And sometimes when, like myself, like you just get used to the things, so it just stops feeling weird. Mm-hmm. But when you're new or when you've just arrived here, you're just like, wow. Yeah, that's what right? I experienced. Like, I was shocked at how policed this area is. It really is. Mm-hmm. It's a low intensity war zone. Yeah. So and when we were talking about this interview, you said that you wanted to connect the current militarization to U.S. intervention, and you said, since the creation of the Central American nation states as we know them, really? And I was curious about what you meant by that. Okay, so when Mexico fought its independence, Central America also got its independence, and it became a federation that included the Central American nations, Costa Rica, Honduras, Nicaragua, Guatemala, and El Salvador, but it also included Chiapas. And so that became the... Federation of Central America. Mm-hmm. Chiapas was a part of Central America at this time? Okay. Yeah, part of this federation. Mm-hmm. And there was a political struggle, right, between how to implement and how to create this nation as one, right? Mm-hmm. There was, like, struggles for power, and they broke up. And so they all became the nations that we know now. Chiapas became part of Mexico. Guatemala became its own country. El Salvador, Nicaragua, Honduras. Guatemala all became their own their own countries and so they also started distributing land and dealing with the indigenous communities differently the way in for example Guatemala and El Salvador and Nicaragua had a distribution that was large latifundios large plots of land in small in a small number of people's hands Mm-hmm. Honduras and Costa Rica were doing something different. You know, they were doing more uh, smaller plots on more people, with more people. And these distinctions then were creating different different government. But the United States then got involved in Honduran politics, for example, in Nicaragua, and decentralized that government, destabilized that government. And so the way that Honduras and like the way that Honduras wanted to distribute that land did not it didn't happen mm-hmm. in that way it was so that's socialist. what I mean exactly and that's and that's what I mean by 
the United States has continuously destabilized countries, right? right? And I mentioned the 1932 massacre of El Salvador, for mm -hmm. example. But why was there that massacre? Why were the people demanding fair wages? Why were the people from coffee plantations demanding better work better conditions? Mm -hmm. Well, it's because in the United States, during that time, there was the Great Depression, so there wasn't a demand for coffee at that moment. Mm -hmm. And so it had an economic impact on El Salvador and affected people's lives. And we're still having these connections. I mean, El Salvador's currency is the, the US, US dollar. dollar. Exactly. And so that's, that's what I mean, that it's like this destabilization and this involvement of the United States as an imperialist, imperialist thing mm -hmm. is not new it is the empire mm -hmm. right it is the empire and it does as it wishes with the lives and with the governments of everyone south of yeah. it, unfortunately So to conclude, I don't want to take too much of your time. Did you want to highlight again the Fort Benning event in November? I hope that you've enjoyed like this conversation. <laughs> and I hope that everyone has really, you know, enjoyed it. And I do hope that you all want to join us in Fort Benning in November, where we'll be putting out more information. You can find us on social media, SOA Watch. And it's going to be in November 15th through 17th of this year. And I think that it's really important to frame it as an event of historical memory, right? Where we're going to go and we're going to remember the role of the United States. And we're going to hold them accountable for everything that they do. And we're also going to remember, we're also going to keep present the people and the children that have died just recently. Mm -hmm. The, you know, the individuals that are dying now, mm -hmm. unfortunately, right? So it's like... We're going to move forward, but we're also going to hold to the past. I love that. And I did love this conversation. Thank you so much for dropping all your historical knowledge. It was really great. Thank you so much. Bye. Hope you all enjoyed the episode with Dev. If if you want to support Radio Cachimbona, then feel free to follow us on Twitter at Radio Cachimbona, Instagram at Radio Cachimbona, and Facebook.com slash Radio Cachimbona. If you also want to support monetarily, which I would really appreciate, then you can be a monthly patron. The information for that is on the website. It's also patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona, and you can Venmo at Cachimbona underscore pod. I also would really encourage you to review us on iTunes. It really helps us gain new listeners, and we really appreciate the visibility. Bye, y'all. See you in two weeks.